as Christians, I'm absolutely positive, and I will say that, absolutely positive, that in a time of trial or a time of hardship or anything along that line, that you've heard someone say to you, or you've said it yourself, well, you know, as Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. Right? You've heard. But I'm here to tell you, no, all things do not work together for good. We have a couple of caveats in that statement, because all things do not work together for, uh, from good. From my own personal experience, I can tell you that it's not necessarily comforting to know that somewhere down the line, things will even out and the bad times currently experienced will be revealed to be just part of God's great plan for your life. You know, I think that as we go through this life, you know, we hope that we will see the fruition of that scripture, but we're not guaranteed that we're not, that we're ever going to know how God used what happens in our lives to even out the bad that happens in our lives to even out his plan. And to that point, the caveat to that scripture that I just quoted and said, no, things don't all work out for good, is that there are are two conditions to that. The NSB translators translation reads, and we know God causes all things to work together for good. And so so good for so far. That's what we but here are the conditions. To those who love God is number one, to those who are called according to his purpose. Note that this promise is only to believers, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I guarantee you all things are not working together for those, uh, for the good, for those who hate God. Okay? For Satanists, for neo-pagans, for supporters of abortion and infanticide. Things are not going to go well for those people. God is working his righteous plan in the very face of evil. To us it may appear, and it often does, that the evil in this world is winning. I mean, you just... I sit here and I look at the world and I say, God... (laughs) How is this going to work out? How are you working this out? What we're seeing going on in this country today or across the world. How is that going to work out? And and as I say, we may not be alive to see how it works out. To us it may appear that the evil in this world is winning. That those who hate God are getting rich and living lives of luxury. While Christians... Just simply trying to serve God are persecuted, jailed, reviled. Uh, make up your own adjectives for what happened. One need only look uh, as far as our friend Ryan Coher, pilot for Mission Aviation Fellowship in Mozambique, imprisoned in an African prison for flying supplies to orphanages. 
Was it an innocent mistake by an African judge that put him there? Or, or was it persecution because of a uh, Muslim, Muslim civil war that's going on in the area? We don't know, but the, the upshot uh, is that Ryan spent, what, four months in an insect-invested, I say it, roach-infested, I, I only heard about insects, but roach-infested prison around Christmas last year. Of consolation to Ryan, of course, is this verse, Romans 8.28. God is going to use this event in far-off Africa to work for good in both Ryan's life and in God's ultimate plan because if God means anything in this passage, he means that his good plan cannot and will not be hindered by the evil one, by Satan, or Satan's minions. I like that word, minions. That's why I had to work it in there demons and their accomplices or by unrighteous men it will not prevail God will work these things all for good this is the great theme in the Bible uh, in its timeline of over what 6,000 years God's plan will continue it doesn't matter what evil man does God uses all things to accomplish his goal. Uh, many sermons on this verse highlight the life of Joseph, and with good reason. Joseph, who loved God and was called by God according to God's purpose, was betrayed by his very own family, sold into slavery. I mean, you, we've all heard the story. Falsely accused by his master Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison only to ultimately rise to the number two position in Egypt as part of God's plan to save his family and the Messiah's line from famine that was going on in the land with the riches produced by the Nile Valley in Egypt. His words perfectly illustrate the meaning of Romans 8.28 when he tells his brothers in Genesis uh, 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The story of Esther provides another example of God's working bad circumstances to his planned outcome. And, and de desiring God gives me this quick outline. That it's the tragedy of a young, beautiful Jewish girl being forced into the harem of an unclean pagan king. But God's plan, as revealed by her uncle Mordecai's revelation of a plot afoot to murder all the Jews in the nation, Mordecai revealed that all of the Jews in the kingdom were to be killed. And as he tells Esther this, he poses a question to her, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
The Apostle Paul's own life is also a prime example of God using bad experiences to his good end. We know that Paul went through many hardships. We've gone through the list here in Acts already. We've seen him just in the last chapter, stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. He's gone through beatings. Later he will be given 40 lashes minus one, which was basically, 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. He was given 40 lashes minus one, so that, because the Jews couldn't do capital punishment, uh, several times. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. And after the shipwreck, he reached into a fire to grab something, and a, a viper, a poisonous viper bit him on the hand. All these things that he referred to in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 as momentary light afflictions, okay? And that's what we're going through in our country today as we, as we look at the world around us. We are going through what Paul would call momentary light afflictions. God's plans are not thwarted by Satan, by men, by difficult or evil circumstances. All things do indeed work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. In our passage today, we will see just that. Paul and Barnabas are called to a second missionary journey, but a dispute rose between them that could have derailed their entire ministry. And if so it would have changed the course of Christianity. But instead, God uses this adversity to not only advance the gospel, but to double the effort, even without reconciling the arguing parties. Acts 15, 30 through 41, we'll finish this chapter that we've been studying. Last week we saw that Apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church authored a letter to Paul, uh, authored a letter for Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, among others, to deliver the church in Antioch with requirements for Gentiles who come to the gospel of Christ to show them what they must do to be considered brothers with the Jewish church. Today's passage reads, so, when they, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. 
But Paul chose Silas and departed, having commended by, been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Verse 30, matter-of-factly reports that the delegation coming from Jerusalem journeyed to Antioch and called the congregation of the church together. With the church gathered, they delivered the letter, which would have uh, entailed a public reading before everybody there. Uh, Verse 2 reports that when the church had heard the decision of the Jerusalem church, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, we have uh, some translation problems here. The tone of the letter uh, was encouraging to the Gentile church as the instruction to refrain from any type of uh, pagan worship, including uh, idol worship, food sacrificed to idols from uh, eating blood, which was done in the, uh, by the priests in the pagan temples. We've gone through these things, to engaging in the temple prostitution, the sex orgies in the pagan temples. They could see them as part of, including uh, the restraint from murder, which was also in the letter. Uh, These were all things that they could understand and see as being in opposition to a Christian life. As Christians, the law of Christ now in them naturally condemned these things as well. This was all acceptable to the church at Antioch. What was also acceptable about which the English Standard Version says they rejoiced and other translations says comforted them. Okay, and here's our translation problem. They say they rejoiced in the letter and other translations say it comforted them uh, because the elephant in the room of circumcision of male converts to Christianity was not even mentioned in the letter. Okay? You'll notice that the letter to uh, from James and the church at Jerusalem did not touch it did not touch mention keeping the law of the Jews and it did not mention circumcision. Instead it, uh, it dealt with idol worship. Circumcision, which I've gone over before, was the reason for the very small number of male converts to Judaism. There were many women converts, okay? And there were a lot of men uh, who were God-fearers, it's called, or um, basically adjunct members of the Christian church. Um, Cornelius, the Roman centurion who was approved of by God himself and had Peter come to speak to him. God sent Peter to speak to Cornelius, so we know Cornelius was approved by God. Well, Cornelius, though a God-fearer and a generous supporter of Jewish ministries, did not convert to Judaism. Babies born into Judaism underwent infant circumcision at eight days old, which was the time period when it would least affect them through the surgery that was done. Ask the family of Shechem who, uh, who defiled Dinah, okay? And the brothers went to him and, and they tried to make peace and 
the family of Shechem said, what should we do? And the brothers of uh, Dinah said, ah, well, you need to be circumcised. And after they were circumcised in their weakness, they were slaughtered, okay? Because they could not respond. That Gentile converts were not to be, uh, not required to undergo circumcision was comfort to the Antioch church indeed, and as was the freedom from adhering to Jewish ceremonial law. Verse 33 says that, And after they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who sent them. Again, in Luke's typical fashion, the length of time, Silas and Judas, as well as the unnamed others who had traveled to Antioch from Jerusalem's stayed with the church in Antioch is unspecified. They were then sent off gratefully in peace, which is when they say leave in peace, it's a typical Jewish farewell. Verse 34, if you're noticing in your Bibles, I don't think any of you have verse 34 in your Bible, okay? Verse 34 was an editorial edition to the text to explain why Silas um, was in Antioch and available to join the Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey. Uh, Rather than stating what really obviously happened, Silas returned with Judas to Jerusalem and subsequently thereafter, Paul summoned Silas back to Antioch to travel with him. But the The editors, it's called uh, the Western text and the Byzantine text, inserted a sentence there, verse 34, that Silas, it pleased Silas to stay in Antioch for a while. That didn't happen, and it's not in the manuscript. So, verse 36, uh, verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. The church in Antioch was thriving. Uh, even with the recent controversy that was spawned by the Judaizers, the party of the Pharisees that came, the church was growing. Paul and Barnabas weren't the only teachers, the only pastors at the church. It says they stayed and taught with many others. And with the size of the growing church, It turns out that Paul determined that there were enough able men for Paul to consider leaving the administration of it to them and organizing another missionary trip to Asia. Verse 36 says, And after some days, Luke is again here with his precise accounting of time. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Paul was not just an evangelist. I I think always we think of Paul the evangelist. But Paul wasn't just an evangelist. He was a pastor at large to the churches he founded. We know this because of the many letters he wrote to the Thessalonians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Galatians. Paul was in touch with them, teaching them and guiding them even when he wasn't with them. And many of his letters 
Some of his letters are in the old uh, in the New Testament, but we know that some of his letters are not because they're referred to in the text, and yet we do not have them, and they are not in the New Testament. He wrote other letters. Paul was not. He wasn't Billy Graham. He wasn't going, though he did go to the large cities of Europe and Asia, he didn't go and leave. Not only did he go, but he started churches. And then, as we're going to see, he goes back to those cities on his second missionary journey and expands his circle a little bit more. And on his third missionary journey, he will go back to the same churches again and expand further afield to uh, Colossae, to Philippi, into uh, Greece, uh, eventually into Rome. We are not sure. He might have made it like he wanted. He wanted to see Spain real bad, okay? He wanted to get to Spain, to Gaul. We do not know if he made it there. There's still a debate on whether or not he did that. But consider him not just an evangelist, but a pastor to the churches he founded, to a pastor at large to the world as was known. He revisited these churches, starting, uh, starting with this passage today and wrote letters of encouragement and discipline throughout the rest of his life. So Paul suggests to Barnabas that they revisit the churches they started on their first journey just the year before. Verses 37 through 38 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. There may have been more than one reason Paul did not want to take John Mark along. One reason, obviously, was Mark quitting in the middle after leaving Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was a fairly benign territory for Barnabas and John Mark because Barnabas' home country was Cyprus. He knew many people there. So this was a simple place to start his ministry. But once they left there, John Mark quit. That alone would have made Paul, as this translation has it, think it best. And I mind you, the translation again, Paul thought it best not to take John Mark. But that translation, once again, is too tame. Uh, The word used here shows that Paul flat out refused to consider John Mark accompanying them. It is possible that Paul's vehemence had something to do with John Mark's influence with the Judaizers in Jerusalem after leaving that first missionary trip. I've told you before that it is thought that it is possible he went back and said, this is what Paul is doing as he's converting the Gentiles, that he is telling them they don't have to be Jews. John Mark's influence with the Judaizers in Jerusalem might have been one of the reasons that Paul thought John would jeopardize outreach among the uh, Gentiles. For whatever the reason for Paul's refusal of the services of John Mark, 
It says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Sharp disagreement, once again, is an understatement uh, for what happened. The Greek word used here is where we get the word paroxysm. Okay, it's, it's where you basically you have a fit. Um, it describes the word used here for sharp disagreement describes anger. Okay, so first of all, uh, Paul may be angry. It can be used to describe irritation. It can be used of being exasperated in a disagreement. And it's also, in the Bible, used of God's wrath. Okay? So, this was not a gentle disagreement. Uh, if you think it was, think of God's wrath when you think of how, how sharply Paul disagreed with Barnabas. And just as Paul did not want John Mark on the missionary trip, just as much as he didn't want him, Barnabas did. Okay? So we've got Paul. No, 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 no. And Barnabas on the other side saying, you know, I think that John Mark will be useful here. Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, saw that something had changed in his younger cousin's attitude. Perhaps there was some contriteness for having left the mission field. Perhaps he had simply grown up and matured. But whatever it was, Barnabas was so determined, just as determined as, uh, as Paul was, Barnabas was so determined to help John Mark redeem himself that the partnership of Paul and Barnabas was broken. And John Mark and Barnabas sailed off for Cyprus. And with that, Barnabas has sailed out of the New Testament. We will not know what happens any further to him. Further on, in some of Paul's letters, speaking favorably of John Mark, he identifies him as Barnabas's cousin. So that's all that we are going to hear about Barnabas from then on, was that he is John Mark's cousin. So, John Mark, by Barnabas' actions, will be redeemed for all of history in the pages of the Bible. As I always say, how wonderful to have your name in the Bible. If you're not Ananias and Sapphira, you know, it's really good. John Mark does not go down in history as the one who failed uh, on the ministry journey. He is the one who Paul sends for at the end of his life because John Mark will be useful for him. I went searching to find out because you know I will I will share with you what history, secular history or church tradition says happened to Barnabas. I can't find it. Uh, anything reliable that I care to pass along that uh, there are some tales and there's uh, some apocryphal books that are attributed to Barnabas. Uh, they didn't seem like they were worth passing on to you and sharing those with. Barnabas's ministry fades from the pages of the New Testament. And as brilliant 
And transcendent as his mystery was, to get the name, son of encouragement, and such, such a name, he never showed discouragement at Paul's ascendancy above him. It wasn't a competition for Barnabas to be greater than anybody else in the service of God. He was content to help and wherever he could. Uh, John Mark arguably ascends above Barnabas, and yet it was a faithful man, Barnabas, who, I won't say saved John Mark, but redeemed his ministry by taking him on this, on this missionary um, journey. So back to my opening pre- premise of Romans 8.25, of all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, the truth of that scripture is seen in the broken relationship, and there's no other way to say it, the broken relationship of Paul and Barnabas. Luke, the author of Acts, relates this situation neutrally. He, he doesn't take sides. And we know uh, from this second missionary trip on, Luke is going to be with Paul for the rest of uh, Paul's life. Okay? Luke is going to be on these journeys as well as Silas. Uh, and as well as we're going to see Timothy. But, but he relates what happened here neutrally. Assessing blame to neither man. And I preached on that before, that we can have disagreements. But by splitting up, now here's the thing, by splitting up, even in controversy and probably bad feelings between them, if only for a time, God's plan was furthered by doubling the, a doubling of their ministry. Instead of a mission of Paul and Barnabas and whoever accompanies them, instead we have two sets of missionaries going into the field. We have Barnabas and John Mark to Cyprus, Paul and Silas back to Asia Minor to strengthen the churches they, they founded there. Not only that, but on their return to Lystra, that little, that little no-account town, Paul and Silas meet a young man named Timothy. You could think of him as a replacement for the young John Mark in a way. Timothy would not only go on the missionary trip with Paul and Silas, but become an important pastor in the early church. God uses fallen men to advance his kingdom, okay? Even strong Good-hearted Christians have arguments and disagreements with one another on occasion. I'm sure we all have some experience on this and and wish it was not so, but that is not the way of the world. Scripture shows us this very clearly in the depiction of the sharp argument between Paul and Barnabas, giants of the early church, are giants of the church today. Well, I mean, you know, in history. But we need to be able to understand the lessons it teaches. Walking in the Spirit should be easy, you would think, 
But the example of Paul and Barnabas shows that human interaction can be messy, can cause arguments, can bring on the separation of friends, even in the missionary field. Yet we have this promise from God that he is working all things out for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And as I said, you know, we look at the world today. I don't know how we get out of the mess we're in. But do you think that that was anything less than the Christians said of their time in Rome under Nero? I mean, think about that one. How do we get out of this mess? Well, they weren't going to get out of the mess. A lot of them were going to die as martyrs in gruesome ways that I will not go into. They were not going to get out of it. As we look at the world today, I have no hope that we're going to get out of whatever's coming down the line. But the promise is, even if we don't live to see it, as the Christians in Rome did not, as Paul, uh, we, we suspect, as Peter did not live to get out of their Rome themselves, even if we don't get out of it, God says that he is working all things together for good for those who remember, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We might not like like the cliffhanger that our life leaves us in, like those old serials, western serials, where there was always a cliffhanger at the end, and how are they going to get out of that to get you back into the next one? We might be left with a cliffhanger in our lives at the end of our lives. We might not see how possibly we can get untied from the railroad tracks with the train coming down on us. And maybe we won't get off the railroad track, but God promised that all things for us who are believers are working together for good. Let's close in prayer.